Do you ever feel scattered in life? I'm really glad then. This message is for all of you and me. <laughs> yes, we all feel scattered in life, don't we? And what is it like when you're scattered? Well, it's, it's like you were once a pillow stuffed with down feathers, and then somebody ripped it open and sh- threw it out to the wind, and all the parts of your life are going everywhere, and it's all, it feels impossible to regather them, doesn't it? Or you feel like you are... You thought you were whole, but then someone threw a rock in your life, a trial, a problem, a question, some health concern. It gets thrown in your life, then you discover you weren't whole. You were a flock of birds that scattered in the process. That's that's what it feels like to be scattered. We like the concept of being at peace, and that's not just tranquility and calm, but peace in the Jewish sense, shalom, which refers to wholeness. We love the idea that life is whole, that life works together, that we are part of the wholeness and we can rest in that, in God's peace. But more often than not, or it feels that way because we emphasize the negative, don't we? More often than not, it feels like we don't have peace, but rather that we are piecemealed. We are being eaten alive by life piece by piece, and you're torn here, and you're torn there because of demands, your longings and your desires are driving you in different areas, and because sometimes we're not good at sticking with our priorities, and we, we get pulled and pushed and drawn in so many different ways, scattered. Your mind can just simply be scattered. Even if you're on one simple path and you keep your life to a minimum, possessions a minimum, tasks a minimum, commitments a minimum, sometimes our minds, especially if we watch a lot of news or read a lot of news or go on the internet and read blogs or spend our time on Facebook, your mind will quickly get scattered. It's just a world of chasing us around. Well, we're going to see uh, people here in this passage who are very scattered, and God has a message for them, especially those that do the scattering. And we're going to find the way to not be scattered. So let's read, shall we? It's two chapters. After last week, this is going to be a breeze. I actually kind of, I'll have a moment of honesty with you. Actually, all of this is honest, but um, a more personal honest moment uh, that... Um, when I, when I saw, okay, we're doing 33 to 34, I had a, a slight moment of panic when I realized, wait, I did last week off of like 10 plus or whatever chapters, and now I gotta do two, two, it felt like two verses all of a sudden, you know what I mean? Like, what am I gonna say? Especially when, cause, you know, I play, I, I outline the book far in advance, and then I forget, cause you're so into the messages you're doing each week, that when I came to this, I totally forgot what's in these chapters, and I'm reading, I'm going chapter 33, I'm like, oh no, the Watchmen, we already covered that in chapter 3, and then, uh, oh no, Edom is being cursed again, we already covered that last week and so I'm beginning to panic going why did I choose two chapters there's nothing here and then we got to chapter 34 and I was like oh so that's where we'll be most of the time but let's get there okay so chapter 33 the word of Yahweh came to me son of man speak to your people and say to them If I bring the sword upon a land and the people of the land take a man from among them and make him their watchman, and if he sees the sword coming upon the land, blows the trumpet and warns the people, then if anyone who hears the sound of the trumpet does not take warning and the sword comes and takes him away, his blood shall be upon his own head. Why? He heard the sound of the trumpet and did not take warning. 
his blood shall be upon himself. But if he had taken warning, he would have saved his life. But if the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet so that the people are not warned and the sword comes and takes away one of them, that person is taken away in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at the watchman's hand. The poor guy didn't know it was coming. That's why he died. So God is going to require the watchman who didn't warn him. Interesting, especially when you put this in connection to the fact that Ezekiel is the watchman and he's the prophet giving the word of God. <coughs> Ezekiel, if you don't say what I ask you to say, all the people who perish I'll put on your head. Now, in verse 10, And you, son of man, say to the house of Israel, Thus have you said, Surely our transgressions and our sin are upon us, and we rot away because of them. How then can we live? Say to them, As I live, declares the Lord Yahweh, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? Now, you can almost hear God's pleading, right? Like, why would you die? I want you to turn back. I want to spare. I'm not out to just destroy you because I love destroying people and nations and things. No, on the contrary, I'm the God who created everything. I created the earth and the universe. I created humans. And through the Exodus, I created a nation called Israel, whom I wanted to show the world what it looks like to have God live amongst the people. I am not out to just destroy you because I am vengeful. But you can see the attitude in verse 10. Surely our transgressions and sins are upon us and we will rot away because of them. How then can we live? This is a human response. Oh, well, if destruction's coming, I guess it's over. It's a fatalistic mentality, right? If it's coming, we might as well sin our way down to hell. You know, the Titanic's going down. Let's rob everything while we can. God is asking his people, don't have that attitude. Because yes, the warnings of the, of the fall of Jerusalem have been laid out there. But that's not to say, I will destroy all of you. Some of you will be spared. So think, think wisely how you're going to live. You know how it is, right? Some of you have tried to diet before. And you have a bad day. What do you do? What do you do once you have that slip in your diet? You splurge. If I already broke the code, might as well have a bad day and enjoy it. Right? That's what God's asking them not to do. Like, it's not too late, you know? Uh, Okay, you went 200 calories over. Well, 200 over is a lot better than 2,000 over. So it does make a difference. In verse 12, he continues this theme. And you, son of man, say to your people, the righteousness of the righteous. So the good works, the upright standing character of the righteous shall not deliver him when he transgresses. And as for the wickedness of the wicked, he shall not fall by his wickedness when he turns from his wickedness. And the righteous shall not be able to live by his righteousness when he sins. (coughs) said two things there. said it in three lines, but two things he said. One, if you're a righteous person who does righteous things, you're a good guy who does good things, a good gal who does good things, 
You sin, you're done. Oh, man. And, seemingly unfair, if you're a bad guy or a bad girl and you do bad things, but all of a sudden you say, I'm sorry, God's like, you live. Like, what? That doesn't even make any sense. Well, it does, actually. Paul helps us make sense of this in the book of Romans, when in chapter 3, verse 10, he says, there is none righteous, quoting Psalm 14. There is none righteous, no, not one. So actually, you righteous who did righteous things, you thought you were righteous, and one sin, what? You wipe out the whole slate? Well, yeah, because you actually weren't righteous to begin with. You were a proud, arrogant person who thought you were better than everybody. That's all you were. And the wicked, well, they're at least honest about who they are, but if they repent, I see that. So without getting too technical and without turning this little passage into a a doctrine on how to be saved and how not to be saved, because that's not the point. Um, let me just leave you with this. What we see in the economy of God is that sin is heavier than righteousness. One little sin outweighs all of our righteousness. But the good news is that repentance outweighs sin. And obviously then, repentance outweighs righteousness. What God is looking for are broken people who know that they're wrong and say sorry. That's who God's looking for. As Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, opening it with these words, Blessed are the poor in spirit. The poor in spirit, who know they mess up, who know they're low. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So repentance outweighs sin and it outweighs even righteousness. Well, we continue in verse 17. Yet... Your people say, the way of the Lord is not just. Or let's put this in the way we would say it. God, your way's not fair. I'm a little complaining, right? It's not fair. When it is their own way that is not just. The people's way is not just. It's not fair. When the righteous turns from his righteousness and does Injustice, he shall die for it. And when the wicked turns from his wickedness and does what is just and right, he shall live by this. Yet you say, the way of the Lord is not just? It's not fair? Oh, house of Israel, I will judge each of you according to his ways. Now remember, these are words prior to the fall of Jerusalem. God is telling his people how to survive the judgment. It is, it, you could take some principles and add that to how do you get out of hell and get to heaven kind of stuff. You could, but it doesn't seem like that's Jeremiah's intent here. So this is not a good place to start running wild with your doctrines of salvation, okay? So just to clarify that, you don't need to isolate this little passage and um, run wild with your fantasy. You got to take the Bible as a whole, right? So read Paul along with it and you'll be good. Um, so, but Jerusalem does fall. Verse 21. Now, before we get to verse 21, you may remember that last week we did chapters 25 through 32. <coughs> In these chapters, we saw an interlude before the beginning of Ezekiel was about God's glory leaving Israel. Then he hits this interlude in chapter 25 where he's talking about the nations because Isaiah, uh, Ezekiel has been muted. His voice toward Israel has been silenced. Once the Babylonians put their warriors around the city, Ezekiel can't talk, at least to Jerusalem, to Israel. 
Then, two years later, when the city falls, his mouth is opened, and he can resume prophesying over Israel. So, the glory departs in the first half of Ezekiel. 25 to 32 is that intermission where we see the other nations are getting it too. They've been bad too. Then, we're right now, verse 21, going to see Jerusalem has now fallen. It's now a thing of the past. The nation of Israel is a thing of the past. The king is gone. The temple is gone. Now he's going to turn his attention to the future. There will be a day when the glory of Yahweh that departed will return. So from this point in Ezekiel on, we're going to see the future being broadcast. Not so much tonight, not as much as we will in the coming weeks, especially next week and on. But so here we go. In the 12th, verse 21, in the 12th year of our exile... The 12th year of our exile. So, um, the 12th year of our exile refers to Jehoiachin's exile. You may remember back in Jeremiah that Jehoiachin surrendered to the Babylonians and they took a good crop of the people to Babylon. But the city of Jerusalem stayed intact. Well, that was 598 when Jehoiakim, the king, was taken away and the Babylonians put Zedekiah, the last king, on the throne. He's a little puppet who's supposed to do everything the Babylonians want him to do. So Jehoiakim and the best of the loot are going to Babylon in 598. That was 12 years ago, Ezekiel's saying. 12 years ago. So that's where he is counting the start of the exile. Typically, when we talk about Israel's exile, we mean the destruction of Jerusalem. When the city was razed to the ground and the temple was dismantled and the king, there's no more king on the throne of Israel. Like Jerusalem is gone. You take out Washington, D.C., right? You kind of take out the heart of our government. It's the same thing that happened in 586. The Babylonians finally take over the city. That is what is happening just happened right here. So 12 years into um, Ezekiel's exile, they now get the news that the official fall has happened. So in the 12th year of our exile, so we're now at five, um, two years later, it's like 584-ish. In the 10th month, in the fifth day of the month, a fugitive from Jerusalem came to me and said, the city has been struck down. Now the hand of Yahweh had been upon me the evening before the fugitive came, and he had opened my mouth before the time the man came to me in the morning. So my mouth was opened, and I was no longer mute. The word of Yahweh came to me. So his first words back to Israel. Now that the city has fallen. Son of man, the inhabitants of these waste places in the land of Israel keep saying... Abraham was only one man, yet he got possession of the land. But we are many. The land is surely given us to possess. Listen to them. They lose their city. They've been told over and over, God's coming. He's going to do it. It happens. And like, yeah, but exception, we are bigger than Abraham. So don't we still get the land? And God's like, you seriously still don't get it. So 25, therefore say to them, thus says the Lord Yahweh, You eat the flesh with the blood. Not only does that sound gross, but God commanded that they don't do that. Because that's what pagans did in their idol worship. They would eat the meat with the blood still in it. Well, 
That little phrase says, you guys are practicing idolatry. I mean, strike one. You eat the flesh with the blood. You lift up your eyes to idols. Strike two. And shed blood. You murder. Strike three. Shall you then possess the land? Oh, you're more than Abraham, but Abraham by himself was a lot more than all of you put together. Verse 26. Three more strikes. You rely on the sword. You commit abominations, and each of you defiles his neighbor's wife. Shall you then possess the land? I mean, come on, guys. I think I'm being pretty fair. Say this to them, verse 27. Thus says the Lord Yahweh, as I live, surely those who are in the waste places shall fall by the sword. Whoever is in the open field, I will give to the beasts to be devoured, and those who are in strongholds and in caves shall die by pestilence. Caves. They're hiding in caves. They think the end of the world has come. I mean, wouldn't you, if you saw an entire army invading your homeland and wiping it out and the temple of God destroyed, it seemed to them like their God himself was destroyed. The end of the world had come. They're hiding in caves. They're spooked out. Like when Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed and Lot and his daughters hid in the caves, right? Like Revelation says, when the wrath of the lambs poured out and the six seals are opened, that the people will be hiding in the caves, It's always a symbol, people hiding in caves, that times cannot be worse. 28. I will make the land a desolation and a waste, and her proud might shall come to an end. The mountains of Israel shall be so desolate that none will pass through. Then they will know that I am Yahweh, when I have made the land a desolation and a waste because of all their abominations that they have committed. So you think you deserve to possess the land because you're more than Abraham? Nah. The land is going to become a wilderness, a wasteland. Now, God changes tones a little bit here. I kind of find this funny. Verse 30. As for you, son of man, your people who talk together about you by the walls and at the doors of the houses, you can just see them leaning up against walls, you know, neighborhood chats, door to door, just casual conversation, water cooler talk. Uh, you know what they say about you? They say to one another, each to his brother, come and hear the word that comes from Yahweh. And they come to you, Ezekiel, as people come and they sit before you as my people and they hear what you say, but they will not do it. For with lustful talk in their mouths, they act. Their heart is set on gain. Um, lustful. Uh, if you're reading from the New King James, which I suspect is one of the leading translations in here, you are, it says, um, with, uh, lovely, something like, they use the word lovely instead of lustful. And um, other translations bring the implication here that what they're doing is they're trying to flatter Jeremiah or they're trying to bring praises. I think the New King James implies they're trying to praise God with the mouth, but their heart is deceitful and wanting gain. So there's a lot of confusion in the translation. In other words, it's vague. Um, so the ESV, my, the translation I'm reading from, just goes with the word lustful talk. And I thought, well, that's quite a difference. It changes everything if you go from love to lust. So I looked at it, and I see what the English Standard Version translators were doing. Um, the, the root of this word, it's, actually, this word is only used here in these verses. It's going to show up twice here. It's only used here in the whole Bible. 
So you're kind of at, like, you don't have other things to compare it to. But the root of this word is used all over in Ezekiel. Do you know what chapter it's used in? In chapter 23, where you saw the, the two sisters, Jerusalem and Samaria, prostituting themselves to the nations. That word is used all over the chapter. So you can see then why the ESV is going with lustful, because, well, it seems like a pretty lustful picture. Um, but I think love makes a lot of sense too, as you'll hear in the next verse. So let me read this again from the ESV so we get the flow. Verse 31, they come to you as people come and they sit before you as my people and they hear what you say, but they will not do it for with lustful talk in their mouths, they act. Their heart is set on gain and behold, You are to them like one who sings lustful songs with a beautiful voice and plays well on an instrument. For they hear what you say, but they will not do it. So here's where I think I like the New King James. They come to you as one who sings love songs with a beautiful voice and plays well on an instrument. So this is what God's telling him. Let me just get out of like the translation stuff and just just say it like this. The people Jeremiah or Ezekiel, do you know what the people are saying about you? They're standing around as they talk about, you know, the weather and everything. You come up in casual conversation and what they're saying is you got to hear this Ezekiel fella. He he's like he's like a, an angelic voice singing love songs. Let's let's go hear him. Let's go entertain ourselves and listen to him. And, and God says, but Ezekiel, they're coming to hear you, but they will not do what you say. They're, they're like, they're like people James warns us about, right? In James chapter one, who look at the word of God, but do not do it. They look at it and immediately forget what it says. Ezekiel, they come to you and, and they find you amusing. Oh yes, the singer at, <coughs> at Hot Shots who sings my favorite tunes, some country songs. Verse 33. So anyways, I find this funny because I always, I sit here and go, oh man, that would that'd be really lame to be Ezekiel and hear that. Like Ezekiel, good job doing what I tell you to do, but you know how people are receiving you? I'd rather not hear, okay? <laughs> and so I, I'm like, oh. I hope people aren't like, oh yeah, when Pastor Brandon teaches, it's like love song. It's just fun to hear. But I don't want to do any of that. Oh, that's disheartening. So I don't want to hear. (laughs) Verse 33, when this comes and it will come. What's he talking about? What's the it? When this comes and it will come. Remember, he was just saying the desolation of the land's coming. It will be a wilderness. It's not going to be like Abraham's land. So when this comes and it will, then they will know that a prophet has been among them. Not a country singer. A prophet has been among them. Ezekiel, they're taking you too lightly. Well, that's depressing. Okay, chapter 34. The word of Yahweh came to me. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds. Now pause before you get lost. He's not going to be prophesying to the people in the fields with smelly animals that grow wool. He's not talking to them. 
He's talking to the leaders of the people, government officials, right? That is, so shepherds becoming a metaphor. God's people are sheep, and the shepherds are those that God has entrusted to take care of them. So he's talking to leaders. So thus says the Lord Yahweh. In the middle of verse 2. Ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves. Should not shepherds feed the sheep? Verse 3. You eat the fat. You clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. You're taking everything from the sheep. You're taking the wool off their backs. You're taking the clothes off your people's backs. You're slaughtering the fat ones or you're taking robbing from the rich to feed the rich. Even Robin Hood could do better than that. But you do not feed the sheep. Verse 4. The weak you have not strengthened. The sick you have not healed. The injured you have not bound up. The strayed you have not brought back. The lost you have not sought. And with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd and they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth with no one or with none to search or seek for them. So. Ezekiel's talking to the bad shepherds. <laughs> Verse 7. They're bad, as you can see. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of Yahweh as I live, declares the Lord Yahweh. Surely, because my sheep have become a prey, and my sheep have become food for all the wild beasts, since there was no shepherd, no real shepherd, and because my shepherds have not searched for my sheep, for the shepherds have fed themselves and have not fed my sheep, therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of Yahweh. Thus says the Lord Yahweh, Behold, I am against the shepherds, and I will require my sheep at their hand and put a stop to their feeding the sheep. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths, that they may not be food for them. Here's the problem. We have bad shepherds. What's God going to do about it? I I myself will rescue them. I am going to deal with it. We're going to see him now elaborate on this plan. Verse 11. You saw the bad sheep. Here come uh, the bad shepherd. Here comes the good shepherd. For thus says the Lord Yahweh. Behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep, and I will rescue them from all the places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and will bring them into their own land. I will feed them on the mountains of Israel, by the ravines, and in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them with good pasture and on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. 
There they shall lie down in good grazing land, and on rich pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord Yahweh. I will seek the lost, and I will bring back the strayed, and I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak, and the fat and the strong I will destroy. Or it could read in the sept, uh, well, in the, another version the Jews read, I will watch over the fat ones. Basically, I got my eye on you bad guys. Um, I will feed them in justice. I love it. Here's a problem. The bad shepherds. How's God going to solve it? I, I myself will come and show them how to be a shepherd. And so, in as literal of a sense as you can put it, that happens. And it takes 500 years from this prophecy for it to happen. But 500 years pass, and I guess Israel had to learn to be sick of bad shepherds before they wanted a good shepherd. And he came. Jesus is the fulfillment of this. When God says, I myself will be their shepherd, he did come, Jesus, and he shepherded them. Now, we got to fly around in a couple places here. Um, or, or you can listen. Actually, if you want, just go to John 10 and listen to the rest. If you want to save some flipping pages, just go to John 10 now. But um, I'm going to read to you from Matthew 9. Just to give you a picture that Jesus was indeed portrayed in this way. In Matthew chapter 9, verse 36, we read this. Actually, I'm going to start in 35, 935. Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. What was Jesus doing? Were you listening? <laughs> Healing every disease and affliction. Now, what were the bad shepherds not doing? Well, he had said, The weak you have not strengthened. This is back in verse 3 and 4. The sick you have not healed. The injured you have not bound up. They were hurting, and you turned the other way. But Jesus saw the hurting, and he healed them, and he engaged with them. Then in verse 36, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them, because they were harassed and helpless. Doesn't that sound like people who have been led by bad shepherds? Harassed and helpless. Throw in scattered if you want to. Like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus sees the people as sheep, and that's why he's reaching out to them. He's their shepherd. In Mark, we see when he feeds the 5,000, it says that he saw the people and had compassion for them um, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus, Jesus saw the problem, that they need a shepherd, and he was willing to be the solution. It wasn't, oh, these people need to get their act together. Grow up, why don't you? That wasn't the way he saw. When he saw scattered people, he didn't judge them. Oh, well, you're scattered because that and this. He saw them scattered because they needed a shepherd. I guess I'll be the shepherd. 
You'll notice that Ezekiel said, God said, I, I myself will search for my sheep and I will seek them out. The bad shepherds, they're lost, whatever, light, leave them be. We'll watch the few that stay. Um, but God's going to go seek them out. Do you know what Jesus says in Luke's gospel? Do you remember when the Pharisees watch Jesus? Watch, I love this, they don't participate. They watch Jesus eating with sinners and tax collectors. Do you remember these scenes? There's a few of them in the gospels. In Luke 15, <laughs> you see the shepherd reaching out and feeding the sheep. Again, we'll get to John 10, but listen to Luke 15. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So Jesus told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? What man won't do that? Oh, I know. The bad shepherds from Ezekiel won't do that. Oh, and possibly the people who just accused me of going after the lost. Hmm. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, Jesus says, looking at the Pharisees, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. And then, and, uh, you remember when Jesus meets Zacchaeus, the wee little man who had to climb a sycamore tree to see Jesus? Yeah. You might remember what happens when Jesus invites him over, or excuse me, he invites himself over to Zacchaeus' house. Um, this isn't fun when this happens, when you memorize passages, but in the moment of people looking at you, your mind goes blank and you don't remember where it is. Well, it's like Luke 10 or something. Jesus says, I even had it highlighted. Where did it go? Oh, well, we know the story. Uh, Jesus says, Zacchaeus, I'm coming over to your house. And then he, people say, tax collector. And then Jesus answers, the son of man came to seek and save the lost. That is almost exactly what Ezekiel said God will do. I, I myself, where is it? I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. John 10. Okay, so there's two things in Ezekiel that led me immediately to John 10. First, in Ezekiel 34:14 he said, "I will feed them with good pasture." Jesus said that. John 10, verse 9. "I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture." What does Ezekiel say? "I will feed them with good pasture." Jesus says, "I will let them go in and out and find pasture." The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. Well, we know what that looks like. We saw the bad shepherds in Ezekiel 34. They literally killed and stole and destroyed. Those are bad shepherds. But Jesus says, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Now, you might remember 
way back when we were in the book of John, that that word life in John does not mean life the way we use it. It's not the biological life of breathing in and out and having your brain interpret things and your stomach digest food. It's not that kind of life. It's called Zoe life in the Greek, and it refers to the life that God himself is made of. It's the life often called eternal life, but it's, it's slightly misleading, not because it's wrong, but because it doesn't give you the fullest picture. Eternal life isn't just life that has no end in duration. It's life that has no end in depth. And so Jesus came to give people life, and notice that word abundantly is the, is the best we can add language to this great word Zoe. It's just abundant life, you know, life and life abundantly. I don't know how else to explain it, but it is the greatest thing you've ever had. Pastures without end, no thief to destroy. Jesus says, I have come to bring you that. Now, when God promised in Ezekiel 34, 14, I will feed them with good pasture, I think he underestimated what good pasture looked like, don't you? Jesus came and defined good pasture with an amazing picture of giving eternal life. So, he becomes the good shepherd. Now, John 10, verse 11. We're going to continue because Ezekiel, in verse 15, he said, I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep. Well, if there's any doubt that that is Jesus, he says it here in verse John 10, 11. I am the good shepherd. I'm the good shepherd. Now, who's he talking to? He's talking to Jews in Jerusalem who are in Jerusalem because it's a festival. So these are zealous Jews who know their scriptures, who love God, who worship at the temple. He did not need to tell them. Do you guys remember Ezekiel 34 and that whole passage about bad shepherds and the good shepherd to come? He didn't have to say that because they know that passage the way a Star Wars fan knows Chewbacca, right? <laughs> it's, it's just that part of them. So, he simply has to say, I am the good shepherd. Pause and let it sink in. And they're like, oh, remember Ezekiel? And they're like, you can see the people listening, nudging each other like, Ezekiel, Ezekiel. Like, it's here. God saying, I, I myself will seek them. I will save them. I will feed them. I will give them pasture. I will be their shepherd. Now, if there's any doubt that Jesus has Ezekiel in mind, I will, let's just go back and read John 10. And you're, not only are we going to see our amazing Jesus, but you're going to see that John or Jesus is talking about bad shepherds and good shepherds. So John 10, verse 1. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way. In other words, if you're trying to bypass security, <laughs> that man is a thief and a robber. It's not good. <laughs> but he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him, the gatekeeper opens. Oh, yeah, 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 you got your credentials, you're in. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. So, Lopsy and Floppy, get over here. Ah, that's my name. That's his voice. You know, they start following him because there's a relationship, right? The good shepherd knows and names, and they understand his voice. When, verse 4, he has brought out all his own he goes before them he's not kicking it with his feet up on a love seat watching sunday night football instead of being at sunday night 
Bible study. <clears throat> Just kidding. Um, but it's not, you know, vegging out to pork rinds and whatever. Uh, while the sheep are wandering around, what do we do? The grass is getting brown. Help. No, Jesus, it says, I, he goes before them. He's showing them the way. He's with them. And the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. Verse 5, a stranger. Oh, read bad shepherds. They will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. Now, this figure of speech, John comments for us, this figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. (laughs) So Jesus said again to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, verse 7, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep The true sheep, he's saying. The true sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. You could also say, Psalm 23 comes to your mind, right? The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want... (coughs) The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The go- I'm going to read that again. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand, a bad shepherd, and not a true shepherd, a good shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. Bad leaders who love their position but care nothing for those they lead. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. And and there's more, and you can enjoy reading that on your own. But here we see Jesus clearly says, I am the hope Ezekiel looked forward to. That yes, there's a world that doesn't actually care about leading the populace as much as gaining from the populace. Of course, any one of us could probably go into some tirade about examples of leadership that abuses and takes advantage or governments or countries that destroy their nations because they see leadership as a way to enrich themselves or to have power and to make their little boy feel better. But Jesus has come to actually show us what it looks like, what it looks like to have a good shepherd. Now, let's make this really, really simple. What is the difference between a bad shepherd and a good shepherd? What's the difference? When you go through life and you have shepherds leading you, how do you know if you're under a bad shepherd or a good shepherd? Or or if you are a shepherd and you have some lives under your influence, how do you know if you are a bad shepherd or a good shepherd? What is the difference between bad and good? It is very, very simple to boil it down to this. 
who gets to eat? The answer to that question defines a bad shepherd or a good shepherd. Very simply, in Ezekiel and in John 10, we saw that the bad shepherds were looking out for themselves and even graphically taking the sheep themselves and roasting them and eating them and taking their wool. Clearly, the bad shepherds just thought it was for them to eat. It's my right to eat. But the good shepherd, the good shepherd feeds the sheep. To the good shepherd, the sheep eat, not me. And Jesus said this even more powerfully than just who gets to eat. He said, I lay down my life for the sheep. That is giving everything you can to the sheep. That's how simple it is. The bad shepherd, good shepherd. Well, who comes first in their leadership? Who comes first in their influence? Whether we're talking about um, work, church, um, disciple groups, small groups, just general people who are trying to have some sort of influence in your life, these are good things to see. It's important to pick up patterns lest we become victimized. This happens all the time. Even in, in, I hate to say, especially in churches. Because you know how easy it is to dupe a sheep? Now, I'm a sheep too. So I can say this, that we're dumb. As sheep can be. We're misled easily. And all someone has to do is have the right charisma. The right authority. Say the right words. Have the right images of spiritual, enlightened, religious And people will eat right out of their hand. But Jesus did not say, I'm the good shepherd because, one, I memorize the Torah. I can recite Ezekiel from the middle backward if you want. I, on schedule, pay my tithes and offerings at the temple. And I give the appropriate sacrifices every single festival. You know what's funny is that we actually see Jesus mention none of that. Never does he show his religious credentials. Actually, he challenges the whole notion. You know what he says to the Pharisees uh, one of the many times they, he's eating with sinners. You know what he says to them one time? He says in Matthew twice, he says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. We can be easily duped if we're not asking for the fruit we can see oh the tree is strong and tall and has great shade but what's the fruit on it what's the fruit on it what's coming out of that the difference between a bad shepherd and a good shepherd is who gets to eat now in a very literal sense jesus said you get to eat and i'm not just going to turn stones into bread he was tempted to do that He said, instead, I'm going to turn my body into bread. And I'm going to give it to you. I'm going to give it to the life of the sheep for the life of the nations. Jesus didn't eat. We eat. That's the message of Christianity. And so we should always follow a Christianity that puts Jesus as the one who feeds the sheep. Um, Now, We can trust people that God's put in our lives if we see them emulate the same thing. 
if they emulate the same thing. Notice in John 10 that he was talking about how the sheep, the true sheep, do not follow the thieves because they don't know their voice. But the sheep know his voice. And here's, here's how to be safe. If you get to know Jesus Christ in his love and his sacrifice and who he is in truth, you will be able to see his pattern within some human vessels and say, these are people that I can follow because I know they love me as Christ loves the church. But if you see people who do not exhibit the sacrifice or the love of Christ, be suspicious no matter how religious, no matter how apparently kind and helpful they are, there could be ulterior motives in there. And, and you, you can discern this by knowing who Jesus is. But unfortunately, often we paint God to be this monster who's really angry and retributive and wants to punish you and that he isn't offering anything to you. It's we who need to offer something to him. And it's when we buy this view of God, we also follow this style of leadership and you will find yourself on the burnt end of a candle. And be the person who says, oh yeah, I tried that religion thing and it did not work for me. And people leave the church bitter because they didn't know the real shepherd, the good shepherd. I have a friend who has gone through thing, uh, some church abuse and um, he... Um, it's his passion to help people recognize this. And so I was at lunch with him a couple weeks ago. And <laughs> this morning of all times, it, it came to me so late. I'm like, oh, wait a minute. This is like totally what we're talking about. Um, I text him for like, what did we talk about at lunch? Fortunately, he's a good texter and he saw my message. <laughs> so I got, I got some tips from him. Um, he actually works for an organization which is helping to um, identify abuse within religious circles. And he, he gave four, I'm going to add a fifth uh, from my own experience. He gave four things to look out for. Like, what does a bad shepherd look like? Well, here's specifically four. One, isolation. Bad shepherds isolate themselves. They don't really have accountability. But, but it's more than that. It's more than just them isolating themselves. That's kind of dangerous anyways. It's, it's that they isolate their flock from everybody else. And what they preach is an us versus them message. And it's so ingrained that loyalty, loyalty has to be seen as our church over everything else, including family, work, and God. God calls you something else and it's not what the church wants, look out, look out. You have officially betrayed the bad shepherd. And ooh, the rod comes out. Isolation. So this us versus them terminology, um, it, it, it leads you to believe that we are the elite. We are the ones who have it right. Nobody else has it the way we do. Everyone is out to lunch, but we are the true people. Us versus them. That's isolation. Second, there is deflection. Deflection is where uh, the bad shepherd is trying to uh, push away negative attention, right? Anybody questions and they begin to question you and your loyalty or they try to, it's called gaslighting, where you try to make your accusers look insane so that you discredit everything they're saying so that nobody will listen to them anymore. 
uh, deflection. Uh, you can you can blame shift, right? Like, but you like no, no, no. But look what they're doing. Like, oh, that's far worse. Yeah, let's look at that. Um, it can also like it can also create victims. Uh, well, the guys did that to her because look at the way she dresses. Um, it's putting the blame right on a person to protect the whole uh, or circling the wagons. Um, if you go through with this, you're going to hurt what God is doing here. We are doing something and you're a threat to it. Uh, so that kind of deflection. So this isolation, this deflection. Third, there's manipulation. A bad shepherd will manipulate, which is the opposite of deflection. If deflection is trying to push away negative attention, manipulation is trying to pull positive attention. It's trying to pull all the attention in a way so that you have control over what it says. So a lot of lying... You can twist things. Um, you can bribe. You can flatter. These are forms of manipulation. Uh, th- uh, fourth, shame. Isolation, deflection, manipulation, shame. Shame is something that God never puts on us. He does not put shame on us. In fact, that's what Paul tells us. Um, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. And many many commentators say that what that is saying in a shame culture, a culture that works on shame and honor, is it's saying the gospel has never shamed me. It has never let me down. It has never exposed me publicly in a humiliating way. Bad shepherds will use shaming tactics, Right? And and one one that I have heard, definitely heard of is uh, if you aren't volunteering your overtime hours, then we have to question your commitment level. Like everybody here is giving everything, and you, you know, they're using shame to make you feel like you aren't doing what Jesus would do in this situation. Um, you can also see in how they discipline you. Uh, shame is about making, shame is about saying you are a bad person, which God doesn't generally do to us. He uses guilt, right? God moves us with guilt. Guilt says I did a bad thing. And, and that's what we want. Uh, that's what, I don't want to tell my daughter, you are a bad girl because you colored on the walls. She probably thought it looked beautiful. I would crush who she is. Um, you did a bad thing. That's guilt. But shame says you are bad fundamentally. And so bad leaders will use shame because then it, well, it puts the tail between your legs and say, oh, help me, deliver me from my inferiorness. And then finally, fifth, we have isolation, deflection, manipulation, sh- shame, and fifth, Intimidation. Intimidation is simply the existence of a threat of violence or retribution. It's the threat. It doesn't mean you actually follow through. You don't have, people can say, but he's never hit anyone. He's never hurt anyone. Well, that might be right. But did the threat of it exist? The mere threat is considered bullying. It's considered intimidation. Um, an example is, uh, a husband hits his wife. 
but never does it again. But every time they're in an argument, that threat exists because it did happen, right? Um, he may never ever, he may be totally sorry for what he did, but there's still that threat. There's intimidation for the wife. So that's, that's the idea, is that they will use threat so that you feel like it's all possible. It can all come down. God will be angry or you're not a real Christian if. And so those kind of tactics can be used. So I found that incredibly enlightening because I don't feel like we get good education on what to look for in bad shepherds. What do bad shepherds look like? Because they're not literally always saying, all right, Michael Beavers, come up here. Let's flay him open and eat him. Like, that's taking the text so literally. You're like, well, I've never seen that. I really hope you've never seen that. And I hope you called the police if you saw that. That needs, yeah, okay. I'm really sorry for that graphic imagery, but I just had a, um, it just took it literally. Um, we don't always see that, right? A bad leader doesn't always come up here and say, well, they're, well, uh, yeah, you know what I mean. The, the, the devil doesn't always come up to us with the red tight suit and the tail and the pitchfork smelling like cigarette smoke to the max with a name tag that says, I'm the devil and I'm here to deceive you. Like, it's just not how it works. Bad shepherds do not work that way. Often, often bad shepherds are initially incredibly appealing. And that's where the lure is. Uh, they're charismatic. They're attractive. Their ideas are, well, manipulative. But we don't always feel that because often this is what happens. We are scattered people. We know we're scattered. We know we're lost. We're looking for someone to put the pieces back together. We're desperate for help. This guy seems like he has the answers. This guy is saying all the right things. This guy has this organization that seems to be all put together. And so we go to the bad shepherd thinking we will be found, we will be rescued, we will be fed, we will be bound, we will be strengthened, we will be healed. But it never happens. Instead, we become part of a system, a cult, a culture that says we are better even though I don't feel better. So the good shepherd is the opposite of all those things. It, it, just leave it here. He feeds the sheep. He lays down his life. Jesus. Now, the goal tonight is not to walk away saying, ooh, I feel so informed. These are the five ways to identify a bad shepherd. That's helpful. Great. Keep that as a tool in your back pocket. I, I think that's great to have. But more important is that we walk out tonight saying, but we have a good shepherd. And if I follow the good shepherd, if I know his voice as the sheep know my voice, Jesus said, then I will be a-okay because I will never be attracted to a bad shepherd because I've seen the real, I've tasted real green pasture. I have felt the security of seeing him lead us through the fields. He has taken me beside the still waters. I follow the good shepherd so I know what a real shepherd looks like. That's the best way. Follow the good shepherd. Jesus gives of himself and says, I know all the sheep are scattered. All of them have gone astray. All of them are wicked. If you will eat of my body and drink of my blood tonight and say, I'm sorry, I will follow you. You will live. I'm the door. You will go in and out and have pastures forevermore. So, Lord.